0: Welcome to The Art of Listening, a podcast about classical music, conducting, composition, the business of music, and how to listen to it all. My name is Jeff Bradbury, and with me as always is Gabriel Gordon. Gabe, how are you today? Welcome to The Art of Listening.
1: I'm doing great. It's a great day here in Utah. How are you doing, Jeff?
0: I am doing absolutely fantastic, and we want to say thank you out there for joining us. You can find our show on YouTube. Also, you can subscribe to this on an audio podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your audio shows. And we are here each and every month to help you enjoy the art of listening. Gabe, today we're talking all about some recent experiences that you had. You had an opportunity to do some conducting of a different nature. Talk to us a little bit about your experiences with ballet.
1: Yeah, so I've had the opportunity now to conduct Ballet West, uh, one of the top five ballet companies in the country, uh, several times now. Uh, And uh, doing The Nutcracker was just a a marvelous experience. I was able to do that because I developed a relationship with their music director, uh, Jared Oakes, And uh, he invited me to come conduct and then invited me to cover and uh, play in the rest of the season. So I just spent an entire season with Ballet West and he just recently said to me that I'm going to be doing a whole lot more next year. So I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Well we're certainly looking forward to hearing about those experiences. Now we've covered a lot of different types of conducting here and we're going to certainly discuss uh, you know ballet conducting in general here but what do you find is the biggest difference between orchestral conducting and ballet conducting? Well
1: in orchestral conducting really the main uh, thrust of your interpretation has to do with what's in the score and what the composer wanted When you're doing ballet conducting, there are all kinds of other considerations in there, primarily what the story is saying. Mm. And, you know, there are differences in how the choreographer sees the music as opposed to what the composer actually wrote. And we'll be talking about all of that today with Jared.
0: Now, when you say the story, where does that come from? I mean, I've had an opportunity to work with youth orchestras. I mean, we've all done Beethoven symphonies. But when you're looking at that musical score, how do you know what the story is? Is that printed in there? Is that drawn in there? What what tells you that? I would imagine it's something to do with the choreography, but that's not necessarily in the score music.
1: No. As a matter of fact, you have to add all kinds of things to the score in order to make sure that... You're following along with with what's happening, and you know there are all kinds of tempo changes and breaks and things that you would normally do with the music in the symphonic setting that you absolutely have to do in order to accommodate what the dancers are doing. Uh, and uh, there are all kinds of other things that come into play. It's probably, I would say, actually the hardest conducting that there is.
0: Well. I remember you and I conducting opera, right? People sometimes move around the stage, but for the most part, it's what we called park and bark. You find a spot and you sing it. Right. But with ballet, <laughs> uh, your soloists, they're all over the place. I mean, what what goes into actually the score study? I know we're gonna talk about this a little bit later, but I mean, when you're yeah. opening up that score, you're you're drawing pictures, you're you're taking notes, uh, That's right. all of the above, right? I would assume.
1: Right. So, you know, when when you're for instance, there was there was one point when I was uh, actually, uh, you know, there are three notes that you have to you have to play. And and if you were doing in a normal symphonic setting, you would just play them in tempo uh, and, you know, be predictable for the orchestra. But uh, in in ballet cases, you have to actually wait for them to pose uh, for each for each note so they are not going to be in time and the orchestra needs to know that and and in in one case it's it's a certain pose and then the next note will be another pose and then the third one might be a lift so you'd have to wait even longer so you actually have to draw those into the score to make sure that you know what comes next
0: you know not to get too conductor nerdy here and this is mostly an audio show too but how do you prep that beat if you don't know when the beat is going to happen in the moment?
1: Oh, it's it's got to be fast and the <laughs> orchestra the orchestra needs to know and sometimes they just know it's going to be sudden, you know. It's it, you you have to wait and there are sometimes uh at like the especially in Nutcracker, so Nutcracker, you're doing 26 shows and it's going to be different every night, right? So the in some cases at the end of one dance uh it's going to be straightforward and you're you're just going to you know go right into the end in other cases you're going to actually slow down slightly towards the end in other cases you're going to slow way down <laughs> depending on actually what happens in the moment maybe they've lost their balance for a second and you need to actually react to that there was one point in uh, the Nutcracker when there's actually a run and then a note that is has to be timed perfectly <laughs> with the Nutcracker doll being, being broken at that particular moment. And they actually couldn't pull the doll apart. So I actually had to wait <laughs> until they pulled the doll apart and then continued with the music because otherwise the next music wouldn't make any, wouldn't make any sense. So you have to constantly be on watch and the orchestra, which is in the pit and can't see the action, they have to watch you. You are like way more needed on the podium for this than you are for symphonic works. That's for sure.
0: Now, one of the things that you had the opportunity to do during this run was to sit down with Jarrett Oakes, the main conductor of the group. How did you and Jarrett meet each other?
1: Oh well, um, I actually conducted uh, some ballet with Chamber Orchestra Ogden, uh, which led me to make a connection uh, with Jared because uh, the head of Imagine Ballet, which did this other this other ballet, Raymond Van Mason, uh, he used to be the principal dancer uh, at Ballet West, and so he gave me that entree to, to Jared.
0: That's wonderful. And and yeah. what is it like when two conductors are sitting there talking about the same score? I'm assuming it's it's, you know, you have your ideas, he has his ideas. Did you guys click right away? Did you did you uh, work on it, each other? Like how how does how does this conversation go? It was it was a total nerd fest, I can tell you <laughs> that.
1: We just we just I mean it's like you and me Jeff. We just started talking about stuff and um you know what's amazing is because You know, he's he's pretty young. He's he's in his uh, later 20s, but he has so much more experience with this than I do. Uh, We just started learning from each other and uh, developed a great friendship pretty quickly. It was awesome.
0: Now he's coming at this from a slightly different angle. We're going to play a few different excerpts throughout this episode here between Gabe and Jared. But. Jared's coming at this from a different angle than you. You are a violinist. He is a piano player. Um, Obviously, when you're looking at a score, you're looking at it as a conductor. He has the opportunity to perform rehearsals. Is that an advantage? Is that just something that non-piano players have to work on? What what do you see as the difference between, you know, piano playing conductors, especially for things like ballets and operas, and non piano players mostly like you and I
1: well I would say that I mean in general when when I first started conducting a lot of people were saying to me that I had to get my piano skills up because I should be able to play the score at the piano now the reason for that um, is so that you can be able to hear the score in your head as you're studying and luckily for me I had many, many years of sight singing and uh, theory training, so that I actually didn't need to sit at a piano in order to be able to hear the score in my head. So that skill, uh, you know, became became something that that I didn't necessarily need and I was able to succeed without those skills. And there are many, many other string players, many people without piano skills who are able to do that. And and that's that's an important thing. Um, In ballet, it becomes even more important because you need to be able to feel what the dancer is doing and and what, what he's able to do because he's doing all of these sessions with the dancers uh, he can he can observe them over weeks at a time and be able to feel what is supposed to happen there. What I do in lieu of that is I actually attend these rehearsals where he's playing and I watch the dancers as he's doing that. And um, what we've been able to do is figure out a system where he's playing and I'm actually conducting him as I'm doing the dancers. So we kind of bridge the gap that mm-hmm. way. But he certainly has a huge advantage being able to play for the dancers.
0: Well, Gabe, I know what your thoughts are between the differences between conducting a symphony and a ballet. Let's take a moment here and learn what Jared's thoughts are. Uh, We'll be right back, but here's our first excerpt with uh, Gabe and Jared. Well,
2: since I still play the piano and and upwards of six hours a day in rehearsal Mm. and an hour and a half for class, that doesn't leave a lot of study time. Right. at least it's hard for me to want to go home and study or even right. listen to music for right. me the music is done for the night yeah. um, many times so a lot of my preparation is in thinking as a conductor even when I'm at the piano Right. which isn't the entire equation of course because there's so many things about the orchestra that need to be studied that you can't get from a piano reduction Right. but the overall things, the the choreographic awareness. Um, what preparations am I going to do? Am I going to be in two or four? Or am I going to subdivide something? Right. All of that I do at the piano with the piano reduction. Right. And, and now I, now that I'm music director, I try to bring my orchestral score to those piano rehearsals so if there's a, a mo- an extra moment then I can open up the orchestral score and, and compare it to what I think is going on. Well, you're conducting
1: Carmina Burana right now and uh, one of the things that you know, I noticed when, when I came to the studio was um, actually you weren't doing the piano reduction mm-hmm. and that was a special challenge for you this time.
2: Yeah, it's not very often that we rehearse to a recording. Right. Um, but sometimes with new creations, they, they like to use the record. Or the choreographer may want to use the recording so they can get the full effect of the, the sound in their ear so the, the choreography can match that. Right. And what I found, uh, you know, this being a
1: relatively new experience for me in uh, the process was suddenly, oh... I have to know the score and I have to know the choreography. So
2: it's like this whole added layer uh, to the whole thing. That was a challenge. And, and then you also have, and, and I would, I might even call that part of the score. Part right. of the ballet score is the, the choreography for just that production and even just that time. Right. Because we could do Sleeping Beauty, the same production of Sleeping Beauty in five years, but tempos could be different, the dancers are different, the company is always evolving. Right. So, in a way, the score changes with each time you do something. Well, and then, you know, we do these, you know, kind of hybrid,
1: what I like to call Frankenstein scores, Mm -hmm. where, you know, they take pieces. Uh, from many, many different things and kind of put it together so that it fits the story. And, you know, you think you're, you know, in the middle of uh, one piece and then suddenly you're in the middle of another and you just kind of have to change with it. that's yeah. kind of interesting.
0: Gabe, you know, it was interesting to listen to you and Jared talk about that. And, you know, while I was listening, I was thinking there are so many differences between preparing a score for a professional semi-professional orchestra and doing an opera or a ballet what did you find surprising as you were preparing your score this time well
1: it, really the difference is I, after a little while i realized that jared actually has this huge advantage <laughs> <laughs> because you know here i was sitting at home and i was watching video from an old performance mm mm-hmm. Um, of the same choreography and, you know, just trying to get the choreography in my mind and putting it into the score and so on. Jared, you know, is living and breathing this score uh, at the piano every single day, six hours a day. Mm. And that's his job <laughs> to do that. And, uh, you know, that that really, you know, gives him a huge advantage. And then... Um, you know, unfortunately for him, they for Carmina Barana, they weren't using uh the piano score and he actually had to learn it in the studio the same way I did. I mean, I went to I went to the studio and I, I I just looked at him. I said, Well, we're doing this um with the recording in the studio. I may as well go home and watch it on video. And he said, Yeah, you're right. So uh, you know, it was the 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 advantages most of the time that Jared has uh, by being able to play the piano reduction uh, in the studio, I, I found that, you know, it was just a completely different experience uh, when I was doing
0: that. But, but that sounds like that goes against all of your training. I mean, how many times has a teacher told you, don't go home and listen to the CD and then you come back and you're conducting to the CD? Right? right. But in this yeah. case, there's a visual component. So you kind of have to reference where people are on stage. Right. Because you usually your violinist doesn't get up and move around to the other side of the stage on you.
1: No, oh, absolutely. And and the the really interesting thing is I well, I think that what our teachers were talking about were have to do with the interpretive, uh, you know, quality of what what you were doing and you know the, the tempos you take, which have to do with what the composer wants. In this particular case, you are serving the story and you are serving the dancers first. Yeah. So the listening to an orchestra uh, go with the dancers that you're talking about, uh, that you're looking, um, is actually far more useful in that sense. And so, you know, really being able to, to do that. Really, the, I would say the ideal thing would be as if you had a video. And and in Carmina Barana's case, I actually had that because it was a fairly recent uh, video of it. Um, I actually had the, the dancers who were going to be dancing those parts um, on the video. So I knew what their tendencies were going to be, and I knew that you know they were going to be doing different things uh, for that, but uh, in the case of uh, you know this particular um, version of Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet, I was watching a video from 1991 uh, of completely different dancers, so I knew that there was going to be some variation in there, especially when it came to the pas de deux. Uh, you know, with what the dancers were going to do. But at least I was going to be familiar with what they were going to do, what their moves were going to be. And since I was familiar with those dancers and their tendencies in general, I could then extrapolate from that. So listening and watching the recording becomes actually an essential part of
0: all of this. When you're looking at the differences between conducting just regular orchestral pieces and working with operas, working with ballets. And, you know, we talked a lot recently about working with soloists. You realize that, you know, you as a conductor see the schedule. Okay, we're doing Tosca. We're doing Nutcracker. I I learn Nutcracker so I can conduct this series of Nutcrackers. But when you're working with those ballet professionals or those opera singers, they've been practicing that role for years. Right with yeah. vocal coaches and breathing coaches and choreography coaches. And this is their opportunity, or this might be their 30th opportunity. Nice. And you might be coming in here going, yeah, I got the score a couple of days ago. What do you want to do? Doesn't that make things a little bit more intimidating for you though? No, I
1: can. I mean, uh, you know, in, in the ballet world, it's different because the, um, Uh, the, the differences have to do with the, uh, you know, the, the people who have, you know, they've done it maybe two or three times before and, you know, they retire you know, in their late thirties. So they actually only get like, you know, 15, you know, years, uh, for their career. And so, you know, maybe they've done Romeo and Juliet, Like three or four times, or something like that. So they're a little bit more open uh, to interpretation. But really, you know, Prokofiev can put whatever you know, whatever tempo marking he wants on there. It doesn't matter. It's up to them. You know what what's going to happen. The the great story that I like to tell about what the composer wants and what actually happens in the ballet has to do with Copland. And uh, Appalachian Spring. He and Martha Graham agreed on a whole plot line uh, for Appalachian Spring, and he wrote the music according to that pot- plot line, and sent it to Martha Graham. And, and Martha Graham said, "Okay, you know, I'm going to make the choreography for this, and in about six or seven months, uh, we'll get together." So Graham says, "Okay, uh, we're ready now," and and. Uh, Copeland flies over and and starts watching the ballet, and he turns to Martha and he says, "This this isn't even the same plot line. <laughs> it's like a totally different story." And Martha Graham says, "Yes, that's how it is." And and Copeland just let it go because he knows it, his music is serving the story, and uh, you know the the music doesn't necessarily go with what the composer wanted. And that's actually the subject of uh, the next excerpt uh, that we're going to hear with me and Jared. Oh no I, I mean I when when I make additions in the score, like I mean there are some times when you know something is meant to go right on and you have to stop because something else is going on. That that becomes a new part of the score because of the choreography. Absolutely. And yeah it's it it's actually a fascinating way of you know figuring these things out because you know as an orchestral conductor you know, very often a lot of conductors, I think, are kind of, you know, you have to do it this way, and this is what the composer meant. And really, with ballet conducting, you kind of have to throw all that out, and just say, okay, this is what's serving the story, and, and
2: serving what what the dancers need to do, and that's that's really really important. And you can, of course, re- make requests. Yeah. Of the. Of. The dance collaborators and and I think they're often open to those things.
1: Yeah, and, you know that this is this is what you know the composer you know meant to do. This is how people are familiar with the piece. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if you're doing you know something like *Carmen* Burana yeah. or something like that. Um, yeah, and and I, I have seen seen you do that, and they've been open to it. That's pretty cool, actually. Um, so, uh, what? It, you know, when you're when you're you know conducting ballet West, you know, wonderful, wonderful orchestra. What what are the differences in you know this particular orchestra versus, say, when you're you know conducting you know just a, a regular
2: symphony orchestra? What happens in rehearsal that's different? I think they appreciate that there will be some idiosyncrasies about the interpretation. Right and i think i'm forgiven to some extent in advance for those things and and so they anticipate that not everything will be standard right and it's just up to me to show as much as i can without talking and then if if there is something a little extra unusual it's helpful i think if they know that there is a reason they assume there's a reason but I think if they know for sure, then they're forgiving and really try to make it work. Well, I mean,
1: you know, there, I think I think this orchestra in particular is so much more flexible than almost any other orchestra I've ever conducted. Um, mm-hmm. Just for that reason, you know, especially when we're doing Nutcrackers, it's gonna be different in some way, shape or form every night uh, with a different cast and, you know, different people doing the pandas and all of that. Um, And, you know, as well, uh, we were just talking about this, uh, you know, if you do Carmina Barana with, you know, regular symphony with the choir right there and the soloists right next to you and all of that, that's one thing. In this particular case, the orchestra is in the pit, the soloists are on the stage with the
2: dancers and the choir is in a loft way above there. It's way harder mm-hmm. and to do that. And they're mostly listening to the piano and their monitor. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I mean you're you're keying into completely different things.
1: There uh, very often people talk about how harder how much harder it is to conduct when, you know, the players are that far away. Imagine the choir, you know, you're at the bottom of a pit on one side
2: of the pit and the choir is what? Like Thirty feet away, forty mm-hmm. feet away. I mean, that's crazy. I was really nervous about that aspect, but it just worked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you kind of have to like throw yourself mm-hmm. out there and say, "Come on, yeah, <laughs> come on, keep going," and be as calm as possible. Oh, absolutely. And, and that goes for any time there's a, a a change. You know, if I'm if I'm doing two beats per minute. Faster, right? Usually, that's more of a feeling than a tempo, or that's right. how I have to think about if I'm going to inch, fat, uh, do it and do it slightly faster or slightly slower. That that would be two beats per minute, but four beats per minute is pretty substantial for a dancer, I think. Well, yeah, I mean that—that's
1: the other thing about ballet conducting is that you have to be right on the money, and. You know, in the case when again when you're doing nutcrackers, you have to be right on the money differently mm-hmm. every night. And that's that's really, really important. And know what their tendencies are and it's like, okay, tonight, you know, it's it, it's gonna be these two and you know, I know they like to do an extra spin here and, you know, something else over there. And getting to know the dancers becomes almost
2: as important as everything else. Yeah, and knowing what they typically feel comfortable with right. I always want to be as consistent as possible but if somebody likes to go fast uh, it's better to go faster for them uh, I was once told that yeah. um, it was Diane Oreo who said dancers don't like to feel held back right so I want to be aware of those things if someone likes to move slowly then I can do it a little bit um more slowly um but that can also be dangerous Right, right you um, really have to yeah. like just find it i remember one of the
1: first things adam Sclute said to me was you know you have to lead them into that tempo um because i was a little bit a little bit behind and, you know, stop waiting for them. I, I was like being a chamber musician and I was waiting for them. And it's like, no, don't wait for them, lead them into it.
2: <laughs> there's, um, there's a part in, in a variation in Giselle yeah. where I do something that I don't know if other conductors do, but I, I use a, a retard to show them what the new tempo is going to be at the end of the retard into a fast tempo. Yeah. So I, I call it um retarding into a like a, a fast tempo, tempo. Yeah. 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 And and that's just so they know what to expect. And it takes a couple of times and then they can hear it. Right, right. So it's yeah. whatever's natural is, is or what's whatever's predictable is the best thing to do. I think. Well, I always thought like like
1: I, I was coming to this, you know, from a chamber music mm. background, and so I was, you know, kind of taking that attitude. It, it is very much like that, but in a in a slightly different way. You're you're more more like in a Haydn string quartet, you know, the first violinist and, you know kind of everyone mm. else in that sense, and you're bringing everybody along. Yeah. And that's that. That's what I discovered uh, this year. It's it's pretty interesting. So, you know, besides music director
2: of, of this wonderful organization, what else do you do? I do a little bit of composing, yeah. and I do some local music history research, and it's a lot of music. Yeah. Well, and you're 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 playing piano. I I noticed in. You know, recitals and, you know, vocal stuff, and uh, you're pretty busy. I love playing with singers. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a little bit like uh, working with dancers is a little bit like working with singers because the body is involved. Right. It's just involved in a different way. Yeah. And uh, what what compositions you were just working on one just uh, a month ago, I noticed? I'm working on a chamber oratorio about Joan of Arc. Oh, wow. And um, before that, I wrote a a very short 11 and a half minute violin and piano ballet for uh, a wonderful company that a friend runs and a friend is choreographing for, Mid-Columbia Ballet. Oh. So that was just performed at a, a festival in Texas, and it went over well. Um, and I got to record that with Becca Mensch, who was our former concertmaster. She was actually the concertmaster at the time I first came into the company, right. and I relied on her uh, eyes to tell me if, if I was doing the right thing. And she would urge me forward sometimes, and she would smile and blink if, if I was okay. <laughs> She's amazingly, an amazing person yeah. here in Utah. Uh, extremely helpful to many, many people. She's wonderful. Well, thanks so much for this great conversation. Thank Pleasure. you.
0: Pleasure. So Gabe, it was great to see that, you know, no matter if you're doing a ballet score for the first time or you're doing a hundred ballet scores, it's still difficult to put together. There's still a lot of things that you need to worry about. You're always constantly working with things. I mean, even when I look back at working in musicals or operas, they're all soloists. They all have their own collaboration styles they all have their things that they need and i just remember writing in my scores you know this cast needs this cue this cast needs this cue right. i would imagine for ballet and I, and I think i had a teacher tell me this once you're drawing an awful lot of designs and configurations in your score did, did you do that a lot in your ballet scores oh yeah I mean, the
1: <laughs> there's the the new things that I'm I'm writing in there, and you know the the new the new colors that I use in order to make sure I can see that. It's like you know there there's like three if there are three separate chords or something like that. I'll write the word lift, lift, turn. You know, and and the thing is is like I'm still learning. Uh, you know the the language. Right. of of ballet and and you know trying to figure out what they're saying like oh there's a plie here and there's yeah. you know this there and and it's it's uh you know it, it the one of the great learning experiences is looking through uh jared's piano score as he's going along uh because then you know i can see what these moves are actually called in the french and what they're referencing and and so on. So, you know, and then, uh, you know, you reach the end of the movement and, you know, I wrote in big letter, red letters, wait, you know, or <laughs> bows or some, you know, stuff that I've never written in my scores before. And, you know, as we talked about, really all of this becomes part of your score study yeah. and what you're writing in there. And it's not, you're not just writing trombones and violins. You are now writing all of this other stuff.
0: Well, you're and- you're writing you're writing the transcriptions in there too. I mean, what 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 does the text say? Where are they on stage? You're writing cues for them. Exactly. You're writing cues for yourself. Yeah. You're writing the stage cues. Right. And they don't give you a lot of space on those score pages. No. And the cues
1: change completely, especially when you're dealing. With the dimensions of the ballet world, and you know, like we were talking about uh, with Carmina Barana, the orchestra is in the pit. The conductor is in the pit with the orchestra. The soloists are on the stage with the dancers, and the choir is in a loft about forty feet away. Yep, that's going to change everything <laughs> that you do.
0: I also look at this as a bridge, right? If we're looking at the history of music, we obviously we got the Baroque classical romantic and, but leading into all this is film scores. How does all of this compare and contrast to what we see on the big screen? You had an opportunity to talk to Jared a little bit about the difference between ballet scores and movie scores. What's your thought on all this stuff, making sure that you're, Taking that music and serving, as you mentioned earlier, a greater power that's beyond your stick. Well, like like we
1: were just talking about in the last excerpt, um, it's it's all about the in the service of the story, and you know, great directors like to get composers that can read their mind and you know know that uh, you know the music that is going to accompany. The action in the movie is going to, you know, be be what they want it to be, mm-hmm. um, and in the ballet world, it's really kind of like in the reverse. The choreographer listens to the music and then makes the action according to the music, which may have, in some cases, in Copeland's case, nothing to do with the story <laughs> that they agreed on, um, and. Uh, you know then they they fashion the music around the story in that sense. Um and what I find really interesting is how the Ballet West Orchestra has become its own personality in that sense. You know, we talked a lot about how you have to deal with um you know what a youth orchestra's needs are, what a community orchestra's needs are. And you know what uh, the New York Philharmonic's needs are, and they're all different needs for uh, the Ballet West Orchestra. They have their own personality and their own needs, and for that matter, um, you know, as as we talk about, uh, they have that much more flexibility because from night to night, they know that it's going to be different, and it's not necessarily what's going to be what's printed in the score. And that's what me and Jared. Uh, talk about in the next excerpt. Yeah. I would imagine actually that it would be the same for film scores Mm -hmm. in that way that, you know, John Williams, you know, if he's, if he's composing a score, um, you know, the, the director really has the final say in, you know, what that moment should sound like. And I think, a lot of directors talk about that, about how you know this
2: composer reads my mind mm-hmm. and knows how to do that. Okay. So everything is in service to the story. Yeah, like you said, and the drama, too. There may be things that I don't notice musically because I'm just conducting this movement, and then I let it breathe, and then I go on to the next movement. But um, a ballet master. Uh, or rehearsal coordinator, uh, rehearsal coordinator, excuse me. Um, an artistic director, a choreographer, will pick up on on things like the the amount of time between movements. Right, right. They will be naturally more sensitive to that pacing. If I'm not tuned into it, maybe in earlier rehearsals or dress rehearsals, I'm so focused on on. The musical aspects that maybe I'm not tuned into the dramatic arc, right? Which I think you you do naturally have seen you uh, pick up on dramatic things um, really really fast with ballet, yeah. And and in a way, that's also part of the score, right? You know, the the pacing, the the tempos have to serve the the overall pacing, not just the steps.
1: So I also thought um, it was really great uh, that Jared was telling us, um, you know, all the other things that he does, because, you know, we we can't just do one thing as musicians. Uh, We have to be able to, you know, keep the creative energies alive. He's a busy guy. That's for sure. Yeah, (laughs) that's for sure
0: but there's something about being busy right when you have multiple performances maybe multiple organizations or ensembles you do have the opportunity to conduct the pieces more than once i yeah. you and i have had this conversation you know we all have our stacks of scores that if we ever need them we just pull them out what is your philosophy on reusing scores Um, starting over, I mean, it's one thing to grab a Mozart score. You know it. You've marked it up. It's yours. You know it. But as we mentioned earlier, when you're dealing with an opera, when you're dealing with a ballet, there's a lot of personalized information in there that's only for that production. Have you thought about what happens the next time you get a chance to do the Nutcracker? Would you start over with a fresh score? Or would you erase everything? How does all that work?
1: Yeah. I, You know, I I haven't experienced – a different production of a ballet yet. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I don't know, um, I'm not quite sure what, what I would do in that case. Um, I know that as I was making notes for the choreography and the scores that I was marking, I know, you know unconsciously or semi-consciously, I was leaving room for other notes <laughs> in there. Uh, you know, in particular, Romeo and Juliet, actually Ballet West brought back a production that they had done in the past. You know, that particular production they hadn't done in in like 20 years. And, you know, that's why I was watching video from 1991 Mm. uh, for that. The last time they had done uh, Romeo and Juliet was a completely different production, uh, you know, with with other things. And uh, I... I my instinct at this point says that I'm just gonna use the same score and <laughs> like maybe use a different color, you know, for the choreography markings, uh, so that I'll know the differences uh, you know, between those. Uh for Carmina Barana, uh, I had conducted already several performances of Carmina. And uh, so I was putting, putting choreography notes in there and that was it uh, for that. So my instinct says that if I do another production of Carmita and it's you know a different choreography, um, although I'm not sure of one that exists actually right now, <laughs> but uh, if, if there's another one that I'm doing Uh, then I'm probably just going to take a different color pencil or something like that. And, you know, and, and do the different choreography in there. But, you know, lots of people, uh, you know, I, I was just um, uh, looking at uh, the Facebook account of, uh, you know, our buddy Samir Mm -hmm. um, Patel, Samir Patel who uh, was talking about you know, breaking open uh, a brand new empty score of a Beethoven symphony. And, you know, just starting from scratch. I like that idea. I like the idea of starting from scratch and just starting over, especially if it's been many years since you've done that. Um, And, you know, if you have the time and the inclination to do something like that, uh, Mm -hmm. that's great. Very often in the business, um you really really don't have that time so uh it just depends
0: we would love to hear from you out there listening in the conducting world if you have any advice on how to start a piece a second time or if you've ever been a ballet opera whatever conductor and you want to share some ideas with us we would love to have you guys featured here on the show and would love to have your stories be told gabe where can somebody get a hold of you and this program uh,
1: you can go to gabrielgordon.net and look up the podcasts, uh, and uh, you can get it
0: there. And we hope that you've enjoyed this program. Don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or of course over here on our YouTube channel. We would love to have you guys as part of the Art of Listening family. And that wraps up this episode of the Art of Listening on behalf of Gabriel and everybody here. My name is Jeff Bradbury. Enjoy the music.